hppodcraft.com. The shadows of LaRue Hall are more than shadows. And since those events of 1880, I've scarce spent a night without sensing the inhuman shapes in the periphery. Were I to vocalize the story I've determined to chronicle in this document, I'd be classed a hobgoblin, even amongst my few remaining friends. Indeed, I've often doubted the shadows myself, and have prayed that what they whisper to me will not occur. Yet, I hear the music beckon. I know that they are real. And that music that's beckoning is Barry Manilow's Copacabana. <gasps> and now you know the rest of the story. Oh, I love that. I love that song. <laughs> I wish that was what was playing. <laughs> My first record was a Barry Manilow record. First 45. Really? I, mine was uh, Aha Take On Me. That was my oh, first. Oh, I got at a yard sale. I got Boogie Nights by Heat Wave. <laughs> <laughs> and Riders to the Stars by um, Manilow, which is his sci-fi epic song. Well, I love Manilow. Yeah, I'm a fanalow. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come out right at the top of the show and let you know. I that. do. Yeah, I know. I, I, it's kind of a guilty pleasure, but you know, he's it's, got some good tunes. <laughs> hey, what, what was that opening quote from? That was from a story by W.J. Clinton called mm-hmm. "The Ghosts of the Future." A story well-loved by H.P. Lovecraft, and that's why we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Hey, I mentioned this last week briefly, but before we get into the story, I got a plug for myself. I want to tell folks about something. I know what this is. You do? It's Pfeiffer Music. That's right, more Pfeiffer Music. As always, you can get the uh, soundtracks for the show at chadpfeiffer.bandcamp.com. But there's a brand new album that was just released by Chaosium. I've talked about it before. It was uh, done as part of the 7th edition Kickstarter. It was a stretch goal for me to create about an hour of music that you can play the game to. I did it. The Call of Cthulhu role-playing The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. It's gone out to backers, and now it is available for sale on their site. There aren't any samples on their site for you to listen to, so I'm going to play one of the tracks at the end of the show in its entirety, kind of let you know what it's like, and if you enjoy it, maybe you'll go over there and pick it up. We'll put a link out to it in the show notes. I love this album. It's really good. Thank you. You know, Pfeiffer, the show is dropping on April 1st, and April 1st was the day that I moved to England five years ago. Five years? Yeah. That's crazy, man. It doesn't feel like it's been five years. That went fast. I mean, we started the show, was it? The year before I left? Yeah, I think so. We'll be coming up on six years. We have done a huge majority of the show are on different continents. Yeah, and I thought for sure that wasn't going to work out. <laughs> Wrong! I'm such a pessimist, but it did. I'm so glad. Well, congratulations on your uh, your England anniversary. Is the country doing anything for you? Queen is coming down. She's yeah. going to give me a back rub, which I guess she says that's what they do for Americans that... Sure. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> I've heard of that tradition. Oh, okay. I thought she was being kind of creepy on me, but I guess if that's just what they do, then that's cool. It's creepy, but it's tradition. Well, anyway, let's get into this week's story. Yes. Uh, We've been doing a lot of novels, man. We did two in a row. uh, Dracula, obviously, was the huge one. Even the month before that, it was Door of the Unreal. Really long books. And then also, we've been really theme-crazy for a while now. You know, we had the Lovecraft's Anatomy stuff a long time ago, and then it was themed by author, and then the Monster Party stuff that's been going on the last year and a half. I just wanted a break from all of that overthinking and 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 just grab a mixed bag of stuff for this month uh, just pulling short stories out of a hat so a listener wrote us about this one saying that it was something we should check out that lovecraft liked it i said yeah let's do it sight unread uh this story was not mentioned in supernatural horror and literature Mm-mm. but lovecraft talked about it in one of his correspondence the listener that pointed it out to us is aaron fetcher so mm-hmm. thanks aaron for bringing this to our attention yes it was a letter to loveman in 1922 lovecraft writes 
The Ghosts of the Future was an unexpected pleasure, although often juvenile in execution, <laughs> it did figure in that night's upsetting dreams. You have awarded me a prize. I like it's that's that night's upsetting dreams. <laughs> you know, tells right. you something about what's going on with him. Um, but at the the prize thing, that's high praise that he won it a prize. It is, yeah. yeah. And, and this story is really hard to find. It's impossible. The only way I found it was as a scanned PDF. Yes. Which those are really annoying to read unless it's on an iPad or something like that. But uh, it was worth it. I'll go ahead and link out to it in these show notes. So if you're listening to the right. show and you didn't get a chance to find it yourself, link out from there and, and you can give it a read. Yeah, well, it was hard finding anything about W.J. Clinton, the right. writer, because <laughs> his first name is William. Yeah, I know. It's Bill Clinton. <laughs> I was searching forever and it's just all – I mean, there are also a few historical William Clintons that yes. I was able to track down. Aside from the former president, there was – Yes, William Jefferson Clinton, who is president of the United States. There was William de Clinton, the first Earl of Huntingdon. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the 1300s, there was a George William Clinton, 1800s, who was a New York lawyer and politician mm-hmm. and the mayor of Buffalo, New York. So I found those guys. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, it was, you know, I mean, it was just Bill Clinton, this Bill Clinton, that. So really hard to get the information. As far as I know, or as uh-huh. I was able to gather, this William Clinton, the author, I found a site that had a bio on him. But again, it doesn't cite any sources. Right. So take all of this with a grain of salt. Okay. Yes. But it says William Clinton, born in 1871, Bristol, England, but he emigrated to the U.S. in 1895. He was a journalist and he worked for The New York Times and a few other publications. He wrote one book of short stories called Tales to Amuse. (laughs) Uh, Supposedly it had a tiny print run and that's all that he ever published. That's it. For a minute, I thought uh, he was a member of parliament. And then I realized I was reading about George Clinton. (laughs) Uh, So I learned a lot about Funkadelic and P-Funk, but... Zero about this author, so I'm glad you found that. You had me there for a second. Yeah, I did he's see. English. He's an English guy, so I was like, what is in Parliament? I didn't read that. I did see there was one other reference to something that he'd written for the Times. He'd written an editorial called The Confederate Taint. Uh, it's for real. And all I know is that it caused some kind of stir, but I couldn't find the text of the article. It upset some people. Oh, I know why it caused a stir. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, let's get into the story. So in that uh, opening paragraph, which was read by our man, John Hancock. Thank you, John. Oh my God. He's so awesome. Dude, You, I love that guy so He's much. Great. He's just a great reader. He breathes life into everything. Yeah, this whole story has a very Lovecraftian vibe. It seems really similar to Rats in the Walls to mm-hmm. me, which we can talk about more as we go on. Which was what, how it was introduced. It said, hey, you got to read this because... The guy that wrote in and said, read this because it really is the predecessor to Rats in the Walls. Yeah, because this is this predates Rats and Lovecraft read this yeah, before early. he wrote Rats in the Walls. Yeah. yeah. The story starts off, we have this narrator and he's going to write down some stuff that's happening or that's happened to him at this place, LaRue Hall. Mm-hmm. And I love that he used the word hobgoblin. I always think of the Spider-Man villain <laughs> yeah. when I hear that. But um, he's using it in the sense that it's used for Robin Goodfellow, the Shakespeare character. Mm-hmm. You know, it means that people would think he's a prankster or a trickster right. if they heard this story because it's so crazy but in a very Lovecraftian style there's just that tease and then he kind of rolls back and he starts at the beginning of everything that happened our narrator's name is Albert LaRue he's a second generation American whose family's from England Mm -hmm. he works in a newspaper write what you know I guess yeah (laughs) sure I've got five screenplays about good looking podcast hosts oh really five of them yeah in different genres he gets worried he has inherited a manor house called LaRue Hall Mm -hmm. he discovers that he is the only living relative of a duke that had passed away. He also mentions that it's an hour out of Bristol. So I'm not sure if 
it's a specific place that he is based it off of. There, there's a town that's mentioned later on in the story, which is a town in, near Bristol, but uh-huh. I don't know if it's actually the same town or if he just borrowed a name or what. The thing I was confused about as well, did he inherit the title as well as LaRue Hall? I don't know. Like, is he now Duke LaRue? Could be. He's a youngish guy. He's got no family, and he doesn't want one. He's a really, really serious guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you say, he writes for the paper, but he's an amateur astronomer of some kind. Yeah. So when he's not working, he's doing his studies into space and the heavens. Yeah. And he says he's on to very important work, and that's all he's got time for. He cannot be disturbed with the family. He says that he be- he believed at that time that love affairs were childish, and there's a kind of riff on scripture where he says you know childish things have to pass it makes it clear he's just got no room for kids stuff at all (laughs) however he admits that inheriting an estate did wake him up to some kind of hunger i think he calls it like he says that he has this dream when he gets this word that he's now has this manor house in england that he in this dream is at a party and there's a bunch of people and he's laughing and having a good time and then he feels guilt right right about being distracted by this party and not focusing on the stars yeah because he thinks oh my gosh i have this property now i'm gonna be it's gonna be fun and you know he he doesn't have time for that kind of thing because he should be thinking about the work this is an opportunity actually because with the money that he might be able to make on the estate he can stop with the paper his hobby can become his job exactly so he's gonna take possession of the hall he's gonna go overseas he's gonna set up his astronomy stuff there and then he he goes so he, he travels gets to the village near LaRue Hall. It's called Winford. And when he gets to the train station, he's picked up by the estate agent. This man does not have a beard. It's not Dracula. Well, you know, actually, it doesn't say he doesn't have a beard. That's true. It doesn't say exactly what he You just assumed that he didn't have a beard. So I think it's actually, he did have a beard and he's Dracula. Good theory. The estate agent grabs him. He is taken to LaRue Hall. Yeah, it's a good sized house. It's got 20 rooms, a stable, a servant's house on the grounds. It's in a bit of disrepair, but still an impressive location. Mm -hmm. He gets the keys. He's introduced to the groundskeeper, this guy, Peter. Right. Uh, the estate agent is going to send some people in to tidy up the place because nobody's lived there for a bit. And he mentions that he has to bring people in from out of town as the locals want nothing to do with the place because... Of course. Dun, dun, dun. It's haunted. Or supposedly it's haunted. If you work in the service business, stay in your zip code because if somebody's <laughs> asking you to travel... I've actually heard that half of the people at job fairs are just trying to recruit people to work in their haunted businesses. Yeah. That's the reason that they're that is totally That's totally true. <laughs> but it, it, this always happens in these kinds yeah, of stories. Yeah. After the estate agent leaves, Albert finds Peter again, talks to him. Now, Peter's this old guy, and there's some phonetic writing here, which always annoys me. But right. He's got the lower class accent. Like Peter doesn't ever go into the house. He just takes care of the grounds itself. Mm-hmm. He says he's never seen a ghost, but he's heard things coming from inside the manor. Strange sounds like birds calling out and children laughing. But yes. there's been no child in the manor house for over 50 years. And the narrator is like, whatever, I hate children. You know, yeah. <laughs> this ghost business, you're not scaring me. I'm like opposite Michael Jackson. I don't want any kids, <laughs> any kids coming in here. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> And he's weirded out that Peter even brought this stuff up. I mean, it's like apropos of nothing. Yeah. He's like, I've never seen a ghost, but I've heard things. And he's like, what? Who, we, we weren't talking about ghosts. What? <laughs> <laughs> Peter mostly wants to talk about the music. Yeah, he just keeps going with this. Uh, this strange rhythmic music that sounds like the devil himself was playing it. It comes out of the manor at odd times, and he's never heard anything like it. To me, this sounds like maybe we're going to have like kind of an Eric Zahn sort of thing. Yeah. It actually sounds more like Rats in the Walls because it's an American guy who inherits an English house. Exactly. In, and there's creepy stuff going on. And just in the structure of it, like you could not make up a story more Lovecraftian than this. Yeah. It hits all the beats. It's got that opening. It's got here's the house and the bad stories and the townspeople and everything. It's just it's totally in that style. Yeah. Um, but predates 
HBL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, since the house isn't ready for guests yet, Albert stays the night at an inn in Winford. Right. And he's getting concerned because there's been delays in getting his stuff, his boxes of his astronomy equipment, which I mm-hmm. believe he had on the ship with them. But for some reason, they're not making their way to the manor. He's getting really anxious about it, and he can't do any work until he gets that stuff. So he decides to uh, hit the sauce. He, he has some drinks. Yeah. And he's in the sitting room, and he talks to a local, John Fitzpatrick. And this guy, John, thankfully doesn't have the crazy phonetically written no. accent. Very nice guy. And he tells him about, oh, you're going to Luru Hall. There's all these kinds of stories about it. And he's a little more skeptical, but he knows a bunch of information. Yeah, the history of it. And, and this is, you know, the exposition fella here. Yep. It's It's been around for hundreds of years, but it spent most of its time empty. It was built in 1452 by the French noble Jean-Pierre Leroux, supporter of Henry VI. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, Leroux was some kind of alchemist. Jean-Pierre was also a known associate of a so-called wizard, Rolf de Wolf, <laughs> who supposedly sold his soul to the devil to, you guessed it, become a werewolf. Yeah. So maybe if it's a ghost of a werewolf in the castle. It's possible, but Rolf de Wolf? Yeah. I mean, are you, I know. it's just like with Dora the Unreal with the Professor Wolf, I can't even make jokes about this anymore. Maybe it's a thing that people just did, like to, but like it was a literary device to like tip your hand. Well, yeah, clearly. But I mean, like, I don't know, maybe it's just a common thing that people did. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. But it doesn't actually say werewolf. It says some say he gave that to the devil, which allows a man to appear like a wolf and control another, whatever that means. Yeah. Somewhat cryptic. It's a werewolf. But also some kind of, you can hypnotize somebody or control something. Or Anyway, John pierre had grown children, but he never lived with his family in the Rue Hall. He, like mm-hmm. he, they, he had them in France and then moved back. And his, this DeWolf guy visited him very often. Five years after the Rue Hall's completion, the Rue's gone. He vanishes. I mean, people He's, don't know yeah, what Yeah, he just happened. vanishes. Like, they don't know what happened to him. They don't know if he died. They don't know what. But they never find a body. They never find any evidence, whatever. Right. His son doesn't move in until 10 years. Like, he inherits the place. He moves in, and he's gone after a month. And the home is left empty. Uh, eventually, it changes ownership. Somebody else buys it. But then it gets returned to the LaRue family, uh, like, only 10 years before. Mm-hmm. This guy, Simon LaRue, who was the last owner. And he was an inventor who was into electricity and building electrical devices, also has some kind of occult bent. The line between science and magic still at that point was very iffy. But interesting that he was like an inventor with the electrical stuff and then also had the supernatural thing going on. Yeah. Very very Lovecrafty, like cross between science and mysticism. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So and the interesting thing about LaRue was he was killed in an animal attack early that year. Simon LaRue. They said he was killed by something that was big and tore him apart limb from limb. Yeah, pretty creepy. And yeah. I started getting this Island of Dr. Moreau vibe a little bit even because yeah. of some of the things they say. Like there's some kind of animal-human hybrid things maybe around right. this place. Well the, well, the thing with DeWolf and this Simon LaRue doing this experiments with electricity and stuff. So mm-hmm. maybe, yeah, it's like an Island of Dr. Moreau thing. I, Which I that was in 1896 that came out. I think this story was a little after that. The exact date of the story, I'm not sure, but probably was influenced by Island of Dr. Moreau, I would imagine. I I would guess. So that night, Albert sleeps at the inn. He has dreams of distant music, and this was so crazy when it happened, but he has the dream that a large ape is chasing him through the woods. Yeah. (laughs) And he wakes up in the morning in a cold sweat. And of course, in my head, I was imagining like a guy in a gorilla suit, not an actual (laughs) ape. (laughs) What was the other story we had with the ape in the... I don't remember. Oh, shoot. What was it? it was, did I, uh, on that episode, did I talk about the garage door commercial I saw when I was a kid? No. There was, a, I swear, and I can't find it, but there was a commercial where people didn't have garage door openers. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to get out of your car and actually open your garage door. Oh, right. I remember. The it commercial. was like new technology. <laughs> and yeah. so 
the commercial was a guy, a husband and his wife, and they pull up in the driveway, and he says, "Honey, go open the garage door." She gets out of the car, she walks up, and then a gorilla comes out of nowhere, <laughs> no, picks yeah. her up, and carries her off into the night. And they're like, "You better get a garage door opener, or this might happen." And it scared I, the heck out of yeah, me. I was, it was like scary, five years yeah. old. I, I, it wasn't funny. It was scary to me. And we didn't have a garage door opener. So I was like, we are screwed, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was always looking around for that gorilla. The next day, the servants are brought in from mm. out of town. They clean up the place. They have it prepared. So he moves in that evening. The house is still kind of wore down, but it's in mm-hmm. a good state for him to live there. He sees Peter, the groundskeeper, and asks him if he's gotten any word about the boxes coming up from the, the boat. Peter warns him that it's not safe in the house in the house or on the grounds. And if he has any trouble, he can come to the servant's house where Peter lives. Yes. And I was like, is he coming on to him? He says it several times. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't if know. you've got any problems, you're feeling lonely, <laughs> you know, just want to talk, maybe come on over to my place and we'll have some wine. <laughs> <laughs> Watch some movies. I ain't saying what they are. Yeah. He's <laughs> not saying what the movies are. Albert doesn't like it. He's very curt with him. Thanks, but no thanks, basically. Yeah. He wants to get to business, but he's starting to think maybe he's being swindled or something because his, his stuff still hasn't been delivered. He's really right. anxious about it. He's looking around on the grounds and he sees the servant's house and it's covered in crosses and pagan symbols. He's like, I better tell Peter to clean all of these things off, all these strange pagan symbols. But he's not super concerned about it, maybe because he's never been to England. So he's like, I, they just do this here. I don't know. Yeah. And then he decides he's going to explore the upper, upper floors of the hall so he can find a good place for his astronomy gear. He gets up into the attic. It's a total creepy attic scene. There's things covered in sheets, and he finds himself drawn to this box sitting on the floor. He opens it up. There's these strange coins inside, mm-hmm. and they're unlike any currency he's ever seen. He's careful to point out that as a child, he collected currencies of all kinds, very methodically. Course, yeah. I feel like he's never been a child, really. The coins say, Veni enim panem et casium. Then he add fruendum, which I think, which roughly means I came to feast, I came to enjoy, mm-hmm. something like that is what he says in the story. But I, yeah. when I'm looking at it, I think panem is bread and casein is cheese. So it's a it's a wine cheese party, bread. And cheese I guess party. they're mysterious these coins, but he pockets them. He sleeps in the house and dreams. This time there is a man that guides him into the library of the house. Mm-hmm. Doesn't know who this guy is, never met him before. Takes him through uh, a door in the library into a room, down some stairs, into like kind of a dungeon. There in the room, there are all these big boxes on pedestals. I approached the box nearest to me and opened it. Light poured as a tidal wave, and I saw moving images played in the air like some kind of kinematoscope. Images of enormous beasts breathing fire and destroying cities. Men in shining blue armor, throwing fire at masses of scuttling spiders. Great shining angular shapes descending slowly from the skies. Somehow, I knew these nightmare images would come to pass. As I reeled in horror, I looked to the man who had ushered me into this place. The man no longer stood there. In his stead was a beast that stood as a man, but had the head of a wolf. He smiled at me and raised his arm, which held a small object. As I stumbled back, he pushed the object toward me. It was the limp form of a blonde, fur-covered child. Whoa! (laughs) What? That's disturbing, yeah. What is a uh, kinematoscope? This is an oldie timey thing, a 3D viewer that has a few images in it, and you spin it, and it gives the, illu- the illusion okay. of motion. So kind of like a few frames of, of a movie or a move in a loop. 
So something mm. like a person walking or riding a bike or hammering a board, like you can go online and find them, but they're really short. So they're only like maybe 10 to 12 frames. So like, you know, that plays over in a second or two. So it's just yeah. something something that goes gotcha. over again. But this is showing him just insane stuff. Yeah, but they're, but they're three-dimensional, which is kind of neat too. So there's two images for each eye, you know, one for each eye. Right, right. So, you know, kind of neat. Well, so he has this dream and then he wakes up middle of the night and he hears the distant sounds of music. He says, you know, I'm no expert, but it feels like the rhythm of the music is off. It's somehow inconsistent. It's really driving him crazy. So he gets up. He falls it through the house. I mean, obviously, who else? who's playing this music? That's what right. I would be worried about. Yeah, of course. He falls it through the house. He goes to the library. It, it stops. And he notices that there, where there was a door in his dream, there's only this bookshelf. Mm-hmm. As he approaches it, the music stops. He feels very foolish. I'm probably still dreaming. Goes back to bed. In the morning, he wakes up, feels a bit worse for wear, but he gets on with exploring the house. He runs into Peter and tells him he doesn't feel comfortable with him having the pagan symbols on the servants' quarters. But then Peter gets really angry with him, just kind of flies off the handle and tells him that if he has to remove them, then he's going to leave LaRue Hall and never come back. And then Albert's just like, whoa, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Calm down. Don't worry (laughs) about it. Not a big deal. And then later that day, he goes into town. He's trying to find his equipment. He's making inquiries. He finds himself humming that tune and tapping out the rhythm that he heard as he's doing all that stuff. Mm He thinks he's not doing it anymore, that like he stopped. But then he's talking to one of the guys who's in charge of the ship's cargo. And the guy says, why do you keep singing? And he's super embarrassed, which I thought was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and he just basically like runs away. I've been there, though. You know, having earworms are oh, the yeah? worst. Yeah. And especially since now that I have children, children's songs are evil. Like, man, yeah. they just get in your head and constantly. And I, I'll be singing it, not even thinking about it. Just it's yeah, coming yeah. out of my mouth no matter what. <laughs> that night, he has his dinner. Uh, a young woman has stayed on as his housekeeper, but she's from out of town. And he he calls her <laughs> he calls her typically unappealing, which seems yeah. pretty harsh and sexist to me. And he's got this. She's got like she's wearing like a striped apron, and he doesn't like that either. He thinks it's very gaudy. But there's this weird thing that happens. Uh-huh. He gets really mad at her because she says, you know, you should you shouldn't eat that way. You're eating like a dog. Well, I mean, that's pretty harsh. I understand him getting mad about that. Right, but then he kind of looks at what's going on and he realizes that he has been eating that way. Yeah, like he's, he's been he has his face in the bowl. Yeah. So something's happening to him, but he's not even realizing it. So after his meal, he retires to the library and is drawn to uh, the bookshelf. On it, there are books about magic and the black arts. Of course. He notices a breeze that's coming from behind the bookshelf. Just then he hears this growl, like a bear growling, runs to the window and sees a white bear passing the window. That's a polar bear, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, that's the only white bears that exist. I don't know why he doesn't yeah. call it a polar bear. He just says it's a white bear. He, he goes to the other window to see where it's going, and it's gone. So he grabs his fire poker, and he runs outside. Yeah, fire poker against the bear? That is, <laughs> that's a bad planning, man. Yeah, stay inside. <laughs> but anyway, he goes outside. He finds nothing. He looks around a bit, and then he sees a shape in the woods. And he's like, oh, that must be the bear. And it comes at him really fast. But it's not the bear. It's this big, black, vaguely man-shaped form. Mm-hmm. And he runs back into the house as fast, you know, and it's on, you know, hot on his tail. And he slams the door behind him and he's holding the door thinking it's going to slam into the door, but nothing happens. He listens and he doesn't hear anything, just the wind. He opens up just a crack, looks out and sees nothing's there. It's all whatever was there. It was gone except for a mouse. There's a gray mouse just sitting on the step and it scurries away. What were you thinking at this point? I was thinking that he was going crazy. Yeah, obviously, because that I think that's one of the big things with the story is just spoiler alert. Nothing really happens. The nature of it is I thought maybe it was going to be tied to some kind of an animal totem, some sort of Native American thing, because the guy mm-hmm. 
was from England, and when he moved to America, maybe he was obsessed. Oh, with right, it. right. With, like, Native American folklore. Yeah, like folklore, which is a lot of animal stuff. But there's no gorillas in Native American folklore. I, <laughs> this, I don't know what the heck's going on. And this mouse thing, it's like a kind of Brown Jenkins thing, because he says it's a mouse, but it's got long hair. The sound of it walking sounds like a snake's hiss, kind of. And it looks at him, and it's got this, like, wide smile. And then it goes and then creeps away. Yeah, I didn't know what that long hair thing meant. Like, if it meant... I just it was like shaggy, like really shaggy, or did it have a head of hair? Yeah, like long hair. <laughs> anyway, he goes back into the house, has some more booze. Yeah, without if he doesn't have a space stuff, he does a lot of drinking. I'm starting yeah. to realize why he wants to have it around. But because of all the animals that he's seen, he has this memory in that moment. And it's the first time you get any backstory or character out of him. But he had this dog when he was young. And just then he's wishing the dog were with him. And then he has like this vision. It's not supernatural. It's just a, like a daydream. Yeah. But like he's just like running with the dog and then he is the dog. And then he's not running but like shooting up into space. It yeah. was kind of house on the borderlands kind of thing. There. It did have a definite but, like, house on the He's becoming the dog and, and going into outer space. Yeah, it's, it gets pretty trippy. Um, and now while this is going on, he just is kind of staring at the bookcase while he has this sort of vision, looks at it a bit, and then goes back to bed. Now, I don't know why he doesn't investigate more because there's that – I mean, they tip off that breeze thing. Right. And he just – I don't know if he forgot about it or didn't – I, mean, I guess he's distracted with other stuff. Yeah, his dog uh, – stuff yeah. <laughs> it's on his mind and well it it's about to happen though because he goes up he has this dream he has another dream this one's really weird he, he's holding a military style drum he's wearing this uniform it's shiny silver mm-hmm. he's playing a rhythm it's that rhythm that he's been doing all day he walks out of his house and he's playing the drum and then out of the woods the white bear comes out and follows mm-hmm. him and then the mouse and then there's this giant ape and then a brown bear right and he leads them all back into the house and into the library and um, the door is there that leads to the cellar. They go down the stairs, but it's not dark. It's really bright, and there are all these multicolored lights. And he hears chanting coming from down there like it's a choir of children reciting some forgotten prayer, it says. At that point, he wakes up. What wakes him up is, is the music. So, like, what he was hearing in his dream is actually playing, but it sounds distant. And he, right. it's coming from downstairs, so he goes down to the library. He still hears it and realizes that it's actually coming from behind the bookshelf. So he frantically starts pulling at it, and it comes open. So it's like, you know, secret passageway kind of thing. When it does, the music stops. So he takes a lamp and he goes down there again with his fire poker. Right. Loves that thing. (laughs) And when he's down there, this is what happens. My lamplight fell upon the horrific scene of my dreams, but now made real. The boxes on their stands connected to the walls by long wires, projecting the images of war and battle and sometimes racing. Figures of children like ghosts ran about, feasting on bread and cheese, feeding the boxes with their unknown devilish currency. Recoiling, I stumbled to a section of the room that I had not seen in my dream. There, in the corner, covered in dust, were musical instruments. Piano, a guitar, a contrabass, and a military-style drum, just as I had dreamt. I wanted to run, but something pulled me to the drum and I began to play. As I tapped out the rhythm, I realized I wasn't alone. All of the creatures from my dream came forward. The white bear picked up the guitar, the great ape with a piano, the brown bear, the contrabass. Even the mouse appeared, now as large as a human woman and smiling wickedly. The creatures played the instruments while the mouse woman cheered them on, and I... I played with them found that I was laughing, and the children, the children danced and pointed and laughed along. 
The wolfman pushed his furry child in their faces, and they laughed, but the laughing soon became sobbing, and the sobbing became a shriek of terror, and then I awoke. I left LaRue Hall the very next morning, but I could not leave it standing. I hired a local firm to destroy it and bury the structure's remains in rubble so that no evidence of it should remain. LaRue Hall was destroyed in a rock and fire explosion. Yet the ghosts of LaRue Hall followed me back to America. Creatures are here with me now, waiting. Waiting for me to join their terrifying band. I know now that what I dreamed was not a past, but a future. I will be there, one hundred years from now, drumming with these animals as the children laugh and play their box games. And, God help me, I want to hear them laugh. And that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. That <laughs> is really disturbing and weird. What? I don't understand what it's supposed to be about. It's called Ghosts of the Future. So this yeah. is some future prophecy of like a post-apocalyptic world where there this music being played by animals. Like are they Is it post-apocalyptic? Human? I don't I didn't get that. It's just such a weird I think it's that kind of thing like the Lovecraftian idea that we'll go so far in the future we won't understand what's happening at all. I guess so. The other thing that's weird because the guy that's doing whoever was there doing the electrical experiments, because when he talks about the animals, something that I forgot to say, mm-hmm. they they walk really Jerkily? The spas- he says, the, yeah, the spasmic motion of the, yeah. They're not human, or they're not, like, maybe living. Maybe they're, like... They're, like, robotic or something like that. Yeah, That's what yeah. I thought. Like, they were somehow put together by science. I don't know, man. Is the the wolfman, is that supposed... I'm, I assume that's the wolf. Right. But then what's the, what's the furry dead child thing? What's that? Because it said you could control... It not- said give me... It would give him the power to be, like, a wolf and to control another. So is the furry child, like, it's something that... I don't know, dude. It controls? Because it yeah. seems like the children are watching him control it. Or, I don't know. A strange one. I, I I don't. I liked it. I'd be interested to, if other people should give this a read. Right. And tell us what they think. Because yeah. it, it was difficult for me to understand what was really happening. So We'll put a link up uh, in the show notes to the, yeah. to the source material. Well, I want to thank uh, John Hancock for doing our readings. He did an outstanding job. Thank you so much. You're a, a talent, a treasure. Bless you. And I also want to tell folks to go pick up Chad's soundtrack to the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Sense Impacts, I'm going to play a track from it as we go out here. I'm going to play the full thing. So this is a track called The Horror. It's the third track on the album. If you dig that, go over to Chaosium, link out from our show notes, and you can pick that up. Next week, we're going to cover another story I just picked randomly. Didn't even read what it was about, but it was in supernatural horror and literature. This story is called The Wind in the Portico by John Bucket. We've done Bucket on the show before. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he did The Green Wildebeest was his, but... uh, We like that author, so it should be fun. The Wind in the Portico for next week. And with that, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com.